Welcome to the latest installment of The Curious Capitalist. The Curious Capitalist is a series of podcasts where we take the opportunity to not only speak to board members from the Conscious Capitalism Connecticut chapter, but also local business owners, startups and entrepreneurs from across the On state of Connecticut. On this very special episode of The Curious Capitalist, the Conscious Capitalism Connecticut chair easy for me to say, Gavin Watson chats with David Sloan Wilson. Now, we are very fortunate and excited to have David on the Curious Capitalist podcast. David is a distinguished professor of biology and anthropology at Binghamton University, also a prolific author and public speaker. His books include Darwin's Cathedral, Evolution for Everyone and The Neighbourhood Project, to name just a few. He is also the editor-in-chief of This View of Life and the co-founder of the non-profit Pro Social World. Now, listen, in fact, it would take an entire podcast just to introduce a fraction of his work and projects. So without further ado, let me introduce both Gavin and David to this special episode of The Curious Capitalist. Thanks, Claire. Hey, David. Hey, Gavin. So I just wanted to add a little bit more to Claire's intro and say that I think it's pretty safe to say that since Charles Darwin, you're probably the person who's added more to the field of evolutionary biology than, you know, anybody else. So you're a modest guy and probably turning red, but, you know, I think that's fair and safe to say that, because uh, I want the, the people who are listening to this to really understand how lucky and fortunate we are to have you with us. Well, I am turning red, but uh, let's pretend. Let's pretend that what you said is true. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I've been in business myself for 40 years, and I was sort of leaning in the direction of conscious capitalism, finally discovered conscious capitalism maybe 10 years ago, and spent a lot of time reading books and trying out various things in our company. And I finally came across your work. And for me, it was absolutely amazing to find something that actually tied it all together in a sort of unified theory that really explains all of this. One of the issues we have with capitalism in general is most people look at it as a survival of the fittest individual, individual business person, individual company. And that usually means the most self-interested, value calculating entity will win You know what's viewed as a competition. And most of us as conscious capitalists look at that and we just go like, no, that's not right. It doesn't feel right. And so we've spent an enormous amount of time looking at different companies and comparing companies that practice things that are like conscious capitalism compared to other companies. There's other groups like teal organizations, agile groups and things that also do similar things. And the piece for me that was missing all that time was some way to explain why in fact this all works. And I think one of the great things about what you've done is, is you've done exactly that. And you did it for the field of evolutionary biology, basically changing the focus from survival of the fittest individual to survival of the fittest group and group level selection. And that's exactly what we're trying to do from a conscious capitalism point of view with the entire world of business and also move them. You were successful in convincing the field of evolutionary biology, and we're still working very hard at convincing business people that this is the way to go. 
I was wondering if for a start, if you wanted to say something about selfishness and altruism and how those two different things work and how they're separate ways of working and how they might apply to business. Yeah, well, first, let me ask, when did you actually encounter my work and start to relate it to business? Two years ago, I'd say. I read Pro Social first, got really charged up about that, and then I read This View of Life. Okay. And that was also reaffirming, you know, it was sort of like, ah, this is it. This is how it all comes together. This is, you know, why it works. I hope that we'll end up talking about Eleanor Ostrom and pro-social core design principles and things also. Oh, yeah, we definitely will. You know, there's so many ways to begin, Gavin, but the way I want to begin is by talking about the concept of individualism writ large as something which pervades business. That's what you just said, that business is envisioned as a process of individual level competition. It also pervaded my field of evolution, the selfish gene, the idea that everything that evolves benefits individuals and their selfish genes, and the social sciences, uh, they called it methodological individualism, as if it could be justified on the basis of its practical utility, regardless of its philosophical underpinnings. And so this was like a common tide that lifted all these different boats at about the same period in history, in intellectual history. If you go back further than that, what do you find? If you go back to the beginning of the 20th century and before, in the first place, you find corporations for which conscious capitalism made a lot more sense. I mean, you know, the CEOs who did not go to business schools had a sense of responsibility. In my city of Binghamton, that included um, IBM and the Johnson and Koch Shoe Company, which were famous for their sense of responsibility to their employees. And so we really need to focus on this idea that somehow the individual person is some fundamental unit and that everything social has to be interpreted in terms of individual self-interest, which was a, a sea change of thinking, which first swept in. Obviously, these always have long historical roots, but uh, swept in more or less the middle of the 20th century and is now thankfully sweeping out. That's where my work, which basically just explains the evolution of pro-sociality. Let's focus on the key term pro-sociality, anything oriented towards the welfare of others or one's group as a whole. It's a more general word than altruism. Altruism tends to have kind of a connotation of self-sacrifice in addition to helping others, as if the only way to help others is to at some sacrifice to yourself. But pro-social admits a wider field of behaviors, including win-win situations where everyone gains. And so the question is, can we explain the evolution of pro-social behaviors at face value? If you compare the pro-social individual with the more selfish individual, is there a sense in which the pro-social individual can win the Darwinian contest? And at first blush, the answer might appear to be no, because by definition, the pro-social individual is extending himself or herself to others. By definition, is placing themselves at a disadvantage compared to the individual who's not pro-social. So there's definitely an evolutionary advantage, a Darwinian advantage that weighs in the direction of selfishness. But then, as Darwin was the first to realize, uh, groups of pro-social individuals will robustly outcompete groups of more self-oriented individuals who cannot cohere, as Darwin put it. And so there's an evolutionary force that weighs in favor of pro-sociality. And what you get depends on the, the relative strength of those forces. It's so simple, Gavin. I just described it. Yeah. Um, and I think that I think all our listeners just got it. And so against that background, one of the biggest puzzles is why did this become so controversial during the age of individualism? Why did it seem to be decisively 
rejected. And for that matter, how did we ever come up with homo economicus at the same time as if we could explain everything on the basis of, you know, the rational actor model? Right. Yeah, exactly. The whole idea of homo economicus and the whole idea of people only being successful if they're interested in their own self-interest, the whole idea is just totally nonsensical. It's so revealing when you finally get the concept that it's the, the success of the group that matters much more than the success of the individual. That's when all of a sudden the light bulb goes off and it's like, oh, okay. So all of these behaviors, which you know previously would have been considered ineffective, you know, being generous and compassionate and things like that are just are just a waste of energy. You're giving away resources of your own to somebody else. Now, instead, if it's part of the group, then all of those things, if your success depends on the success of the group, then everything that we find intrinsically rewarding, all those things like compassion, generosity, and gratitude, humility, and humor, all of those things are actually the glue that holds the group together and keeps it going. And, and in fact, is what we require for our success because we're, as you've said in your books, you're, we're group creatures. We're not whole at the level of the individual. We're only whole at the level of a group. Yeah, and I want to complicate things right at the beginning of our conversation by talking about multi-level selection, Great. like the nested Russian dolls. And what's so fascinating about that is that virtue converts to vice as we think of a hierarchy of groups within groups within groups. So we can begin with individual self-preservation is a good thing until it leads to self-dealing, helping family and friends a good thing until it leads to cronyism and nepotism, corporate welfare a good thing until it disrupts the economy, national welfare a good thing until it overheats the earth. And so almost everything that we recognize as a problem is in fact virtuous at a smaller scale. Isn't that interesting? Very little that we do that's disruptive is truly selfish. Typically it is a cooperative activity, but is one which is becoming part of the problem at higher mm. levels. And as simple as that is, it leads to an amazing conclusion, a scientific justification for a whole earth ethic. The only way to solve that problem is to have the welfare of the whole system in mind, that's the global system. And then those lower level entities, they don't go away, they're needed all the way down to the small group, but they need to be coordinated with the higher level good in mind. And if that doesn't happen, then you have this perverse phenomenon of virtue converting to vice higher up the scale. And so a whole earth ethic is something that emerges from this framework in a very basic and fundamental way and that's great. I mean, those of us that have a whole earth ethic, Gavin, I don't know you well yet, but no, we have yeah. traded quite a few emails. And uh, something you've said in your emails in which I'm gonna be coming through in this conversation is that what's new here is a theoretical justification. Basically yes. the explanation as to why this is true. We know that it's true in a sense. We have the experience, we have the examples, we have inspiring stories about it. But what we haven't had until recently is some sense in which we can say this is you know scientifically true that's what we have now that we didn't have until recently and the other story this what seemed to be so very authoritative of this edifice of neoclassical economics is truly proving to be an emperor with no clothes i mean it's it's just um, yes. uh, when you look at it it's just like yep. oh boy <laughs> yeah, exactly. I used to be kind of shy about calling it out and saying, oh, yeah, this is a bunch of rubbish. But 
I've lost my shyness on that. And, you know, what you just said, too, reminded me of Desmond Tutu made a remark in a book that he did along with the Dalai Lama and uh, Douglas Abrams called the, the Book of Joy. And he one of the comments he made is that, you know, is when ancient philosophies and religions and, and science all turns to come together and say the same thing, you know, we must be really on to something. And like you said, it's that theoretical justification. It's an explanation that explains why these things work and why the other things are actually provably wrong. You know, there is no case where the being selfish as an individual or even behaving selfish as a company at a company level can be good ultimately for, you know, as good for that individual or as good for that company as it could be if they had a more pro-social outlook. Well, I was going to actually ask you a question, Gavin, because sure. uh, in my world, I deal in so many different sectors mm. in economics, business, but also more spiritually oriented people. I actually mm. had a conversation with His Holiness, which was amazing, yes. an opportunity for a, a conversation. And I was going to ask you, in some ways, these seems like, you know, worlds apart. Economics, for example, compared to people that really take spirituality seriously. I know, since I traffic in both worlds, and I regard myself as someone who's become bilingual, that they're both driving towards the same thing. And also, and this, this is my question for you, they're not so separate after all. And that if you look at uh, people in the business world and the economics world, you find many, and I'll bet that mm. you would count yourself among them, that do have a spiritual side and, and uh, aren't afraid to talk about it and think it's actually very important to. I think there is a literature on it that the most successful business leaders often do have. John Templeton would be one. And uh, we do a lot of work with the John Templeton Foundations. So anyhow, speak to me about the role of spirituality in the business world. Yeah, so I was a psychology and uh, religious studies major in college, and then I got drafted into the company business. So from my perspective, the way I looked at things, I was always looking at the group of people that we had and trying to create you know, a pro-social environment, a pro-social group feeling where people felt safe to bring their whole selves to work, contribute what they do best every day for, for the whole group. And, you know, that way they leave fulfilled and they are energized by what they're doing. That was my goal. And I used to tell people when they started working for us that I could pay them for the 40 hours of work that they were putting in, but I couldn't pay them for the 40 hours of life that they we're sharing with the rest of their group. You know, I don't have enough money to pay for 40 hours of somebody's life. So, but what I can do is try to create that environment where people can learn new things, basically get intrinsically rewarded by what they're doing at, at work. So, you know, it's things like friendships, sharing compassion, generosity, helping people out. People get a lot of intrinsic reward out of doing the thing that they are uniquely good at for their group that happens to need that thing today. So that's the sort of thing so that drives that and, and uh, makes for essentially for human happiness. And at the same time, the secret sauce to that is a big dose of autonomy. So, you know, people deciding, you know, what they're going to do, how they're going to do it, who they're going to do it with. Yeah. Um, so and, you're, and you're reeling off without naming them. I mean, without mentioning it by name, you're right. reeling off Eleanor Ostrom's core design principles, which we yes. will be getting to. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Edward Deasy's research on autonomous motivation theory that, you know, having autonomy is a key part of what motivates us. One thing, Gavin, that I wanted to bring up is that uh, sure. I mean, your company was in the manufacturing sector. So what these folks were actually doing was, I want to say, a little bit mundane. But nevertheless, uh, you're describing it in a way that they would still get a lot of meaning from their jobs. Speak to me a little bit about how do they get meaning from their jobs when 
from some perspectives, what they were actually creating. I mean, it was useful things, but yes, it's, it's not as if the company had some kind of pro-social mission. It was, um, we were making it was stuff. manufacturing, making right, stuff. Yeah. Right, yeah, exactly. We were making stuff. And you know, what kind of started it in a way was we um, started doing lean in our company and we hired a lean consultant who was amazing. You know, he basically told us in the beginning, he said, if you're gonna lay people off or, you know, whatever, I'm not doing this. This is for, you know, creating potential for further growth in your company. So we agreed to that and started doing it. And what happens when you do, you know, a lean Kaizen event is you basically allow people for a week or so to come out of doing, you know, working in the business and now they're working on the business. So they're, they've changed their, their level of um, interaction and they're actually looking at the processes and now you've given them the permission to go ahead and change things. So they can go and reorganize the production process or make something, you know, in a way that they think is better. And that engagement, that be able, ability to use creativity and work with a bunch of other people and figuring something like that out, that's engaging and that's fulfilling. So one story that, that we had that was, was fun is I came in at uh, six o'clock in the morning, as they used to do just to meet the people on the third shift and see what they'd been up to. And they were extra excited that morning. They said, come on out and see what we did in the production floor. So it had been a slow night. And they'd taken upon themselves to reorganize a whole bunch of stuff in the production floor. They took stuff out of some rooms and they put it in the warehouse because we hardly ever used it. They moved in other equipment that fit better in that room. They reorganized other things. And, you know, all without calling me or the production manager or the assistant production manager, this is all like on the third shift, you know, at night. For me, that was, they were so excited about it and they were, you know, they knew that this, they'd done an amazing thing and it was amazing. A lot of company executives would have completely flipped out. Like you did that without permission. We should have put it through engineering. We should have done all the stuff. We should have done a study, whatever. And they just did it. They got the warehouse guys, the maintenance guys in there and everybody got involved. And when you're working like that, you're working at the speed of thought instead of the speed of bureaucracy. So you're gonna just outcompete you know, other companies that are slogged down in that stuff. And everybody's having a great time all at the same time. So it all just kind of fits together. Well, let me cross check that with what I know about Toyota and sure. lean manufacturing, much less than you, of course, but just based on what I've read no, no. And, and particularly one book called the Toyota Kata by Mike Rother, who you might be familiar with. And there it's much like what you described, but it's a little bit more structured so that they have these andons, these used to be ropes that they would pull. So whenever yeah. something's not going right, then that's signaled basically by the workers. And then there's a swarm of activity around that problem. And that's why the managers are on the shop floor, not on the top floor. So it's very much like you say, but then because it is such a complex system, when they actually decide to do something different, then that implementation is very careful. And it's just one at a time because it's going to percolate through the whole system. And what you just described was a little bit more loosey goosey than that, that these guys yeah. just, you know, took it upon themselves and, and they thankfully knew what to do. But I'm just wondering about that one discrepancy. Maybe you have a smaller operation or something, but that's the kind of the very structured and cautious way that a Toyota assembly plant evolves itself compared to the story that you just told. Yeah, so I think there's two differences. One is that we had more discrete operations as opposed to, you know, raw materials coming inside and cars going out the other end. So right. it's a little easier to mess around with stuff and you're not necessarily changing the entire system. So we did have that. The other thing I think that in a way, the way I look at lean is in a sense, it can be like a baby step in the right direction. So you have a, you know, a manager or a supervisor or somebody who's not necessarily comfortable with relinquishing, relinquishing control. 
and you can basically say to them, look, it's just for one week, it's just these six people, and they're just working on this one thing. So yeah. that person can kind of like go like, okay, I guess I can let that go. And then once they see that happen a few times, then they get the idea of like, oh, well, this can really work. And you know, when you look at agile companies, you see a similar thing. There's a framework for doing like Scrum or you know agile work where you know there's a list of things that need to be done and a time frame in which they're going to get done. But within that system, individual people are deciding which ones of those things that they're going to work on with whom, and they get them done, and then they move on to the next one. And so there's much more autonomy there, you know, and that kind of system, much more freedom, also within you know a framework. Essentially, as long as you're pretty sure you're not drilling holes below the waterline of the boat, it's okay to go ahead and drill some holes and attach some different things and mess with it. You yeah. know, but if you're getting if you're going getting close to the waterline, then you maybe need to like talk to a few. Yeah, people. well, it's structured. I mean, it's structured to be modular so that you could have built autonomy in the yeah. in the operations by making it. And that's I think a a principle of a systems engineering basically is that you make it modular so that you don't have this problem of just everything affecting mm. everything else. You know, one of the things I want to bring in, uh, Gavin, or to emphasize is that um, what we're describing here are so many cases of cultural evolution in action. We've mentioned two. One is lean, so that started with in the automobile industry. The other is agile, which started in the software development industry. And in each case, there was a convergence and the people didn't necessarily know what they were doing or and they might have described it in different ways, but but what they came up with, almost mutation-like, and if you hear the stories and mm. you've heard the stories, you know, how did you come up with this great practice? And it's just like, well, this happened and then that happened. and Yeah, almost driven to it, yeah. Basically, it converges on these practices that we're about to describe, which is a group level adaptation. There's no individual level competition here. This right. is definitely a form of structured teamwork. And then it spreads on its own merits. And so, you know, what Schumpeter described as creative destruction is happening to a degree. Because it works, it prospers and spreads and diversifies. But because of the way that it's formulated and described, it remains circumscribed. And so if it began in the automobile industry, it stays within the auto or just spreads a little bit. And the spread is quite slow. I mean, you know, Toyota is now what, 70 or 80 years old. That's, that's several decades were required to bring it to that point. And so what's lacking, first of all, what it means is that is that there's wonderful positive examples to learn from, to identify and learn from. It's been a kind of hobby of mine to find those examples in the business and manufacturing literature. One that I love, which is lesser known than lean and agile, is uh, it's called rapid results. Hmm. Uh, the rapid results method. And it's a kind of a teamwork method that's uh, much like what you described. So that's the good news is that there's all kinds of success stories out there to learn from. The bad news is that they're totally unknown beyond their borders, totally unknown beyond their borders. And that's this archipelago metaphor that I love to make archipelagos of uh, many islands of thought and practice with little communication among islands. So the general description, the ability to explain in very general terms that all of this is a matter of cooperation, coordination and adaptation, the flexibility to adapt. All groups need those things cooperate, coordinate, and the flexibility to adapt. It doesn't matter what they're doing. They could be creating a widget. They could be doing anything. Those are the things that all groups need and that we can explain in very general terms. Yeah, I agree with you. Those things do tend to stay within those industries. And because people think that it works because it's being used in that setting. 
and they don't realize that that same lean principle will also work in an office environment or that same agile principle will work in, a, in any number of different places. And then the underlying, what I think is also missing is the underlying reasons why those things work. I think they all work well because they all are aligned with our general human nature and our human nature has been determined by evolution. And because what made us successful 50,000 years ago, wandering around the African savanna is still what makes us successful today. It's what we're designed for and it works and we should still be employing it, I think is it. My, yeah, my yeah. so, uh, you know, I mean, obviously your excitement about this feast of ideas, basically, and to have this big picture to be thinking about it, it's like a cosmology that it's very useful in a practical sense. So we're getting our business done well, so that's great. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's like the kind of reason that people love going to college and, you know, philosophizing and, you know, what does it mean to be human? And and what gives meaning and every chance I get, I'll do it here too. It's like the fact that you could have both, mm. that, we could, that yes. we could be just, you know, getting our business done well and being college professors, you know, what could be better than that, that combination? Right, yeah, exactly. We used to do, I think it was back in the 80s, Harrison Owen came up with this idea called open space technology. And really what it is, is you have a issue or a problem or opportunity that needs work on it and people get together to resolve that. So one example that we used to do it at our company. So one example was my sister had gotten a whole bunch of new business from one of our customers. And the problem was, is we basically had no more capacity on that part of the production line. It would have taken you know, a year, year and a half to install more equipment. So we basically called an open space meeting and said, here, you know, we have this customer, they need this stuff. We have this much capacity left. It's not enough. So I basically just picked a time and a place and said, you know, anybody's interested in talking about this, this is where we're gonna, you know, get together. So people come and the people who come are the people who self-selected that they're interested in this topic and they think that they have something to contribute. Everybody sits in a circle, there's a table in the middle with a bunch of paper and some markers. And you basically ask people if they've got an idea or something related to this or a subject that we need to talk on that can contribute to it, just to get up in the front of the room, right, you know, in the middle of the room, write that down on the piece of paper and then tell people, you know, kind of, I'm so-and-so, this is my idea. And then you post it on the wall in a grid. So there's a grid of time in one direction and space in another direction. So you just post it, you know, we're gonna meet in conference number three and talk about this at 11 o'clock or whatever. And you just post that on that grid. So basically the process just runs until everybody who's wanted to has had a chance to stand up and talk about it, you know. So let me get it straight. There's actually a time dimension to this so that people come in, led west, they add notes to the wall in some kind of direction so that you could actually get the older ones and the more recent ones. No, so what it really is, is just meeting times throughout the day and then locations for those meetings. So like if I propose something, I say, oh, I think we can do the cleaning procedure faster and make a quicker transition between you know products. Then I would go and basically suggest that. I've got a sheet of paper that basically says that on the top and then I go and I put that on a wall. Maybe I pick the 11 o'clock in the morning slot and I pick conference room number two and I just stick it there. So once everybody's had a chance to make proposals about subjects we could talk about, that we open the marketplace. And so what that means is that now you can go to the wall and sign up for to be in whatever discussion you want to be part of. Then the meetings would just ensue. So people would then go off and start their meetings and we would use big 3M poster board stuff to collect notes. 
so that people would write down what they've decided if they made a decision or something that needed more work or, or whatever it was, and then post that on the wall someplace else in the in the area that people who couldn't go to that meeting could go and look and see, you know, what that group came up with. So basically, you know, in that example, maybe 35 people showed up. We got enormous amounts of ideas. And then we took those back to the production facility and posted them on the wall outside the area where we needed the increase in production. And at that point, we basically operated more of an agile system. So that was the burn down chart, if you will, of all the lists of things that needed to be done. People would look at those things, cleaning up the tool room and straightening that out and, and making it more organized. I like doing that. I'll you know put their name on that. And then maybe you like doing that too. So you're like, yeah, I'm going to do this with Gavin. We're going to go clean the tool thing up and make sure it's all neat organized. And that's going to help to obviously, you know, speed up production and changeovers and, and give us more capacities. So people would just do that when they would got that one done, then we would sign up to do a different thing. And, and we basically just chugged through all of that stuff. And the beauty of the whole system is there was no agenda. Everybody created the agenda. They all created the list of things that we were going to do, and they all did them. And I never, ever once told anybody to do anything. It was all self-directed, but you were a participant. You were a participant. Yes, I was right? a participant in the thing, but I wasn't telling people anything. I'm just like everybody else. All I'm doing is what Harrison Owen calls holding the space open to allow the, the system to flow and for people to do this. Yeah. So there's another example of basically that was a conscious evolutionary process in my vocabulary. You had a target of selection, you oriented variation around the target, and yep. then you identified and replicated best practices. So that's conscious cultural evolution in action so straightforwardly that the main question that you would might be asking and some of our listeners might be answered would say, okay, well, what have you done but describe it in different words? And I think there's a good answer to that question, but let's just mark it that that's what happened. Conscious cultural evolution. When you say that, what's that? And then you have to explain it and stuff, but, but it's what you did. You had a target of selection. You are in a variation around the target. You replicated best practices. That's what evolution is. It's a variation selection replication process and you bottled it for mm. this operation. And then when we have more time, we can describe, you know, what the added value is of just naming right. it for what it is. Right, yeah. And actually, as you were talking about that, it reminded me, I'm not gonna remember the name of the author, but there's a book called Joy Inc. It's basically about software designing. And the guy who runs the software company basically tells his people all the time, just run experiments, run as many experiments as possible because that's how we're gonna iterate and find better solutions. Yeah. So it's a, it's that same kind of idea because we run an experiment that we'll see what works, what didn't work, we gain valuable insight. And Lean, I think, has the same quote. You know, if you don't try new things, no new information will come to you. So you've got to try new stuff. Now, it should be said that when you look at either Lean or Agile or any of these, as they become successful, they get applied in diverse aspects. And sometimes they lose their potency. Yeah. And Mark Rother in the Toyota Kata, he's a complex systems theorist. And one of the things he said is that part of the problem of understanding this is that when you, even the people at Toyota don't really know what they're doing. And often it's so to explain it in functional terms is part of the added value. And very often, because you're not really naming it and understanding it for what it is, then it can go wrong in a number of ways. And a particular problem I know, in part because my son is a software developer, has worked in major tech firms. You know, some of these scrum teams and agile and stuff like that, they don't work very well, you know, frankly. Right, right. And, um, and one reason they don't is that they work at a lower level, but then they're stuck in a more standard command and control hierarchy. 
at the higher levels and that's harder to change. And so it really has to be like, you know, a top to bottom social organization. It's not just something you could implement at lower levels and then have that operating within a more rigid command yeah. and control structure. Exactly. It's been limited by the other system that it resides within. For people to really get somewhere with it, they have to realize that it's a fractal thing and that what works at that little level will also work at the bigger level. They just have to figure out how to do that. And there's are different ways of doing that. Some of them, you know, sort of prepackaged understanding ways of doing those, but also, you know, you can just sort of run experiments and see what works, you know, and as long as you don't come in in the morning and find drilled well below the waterline, you're probably yeah. doing okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I, like the, uh, I like that phrase. There's a lot of things that'd be great to talk about. Well, one thing I was thinking about in conscious capitalism, we talk about creating a conscious culture and we also talk about stakeholder orientation. So conscious culture within the company and then the stakeholder orientation is like we're paying attention to our suppliers' needs or customers' needs, the community that we reside in and ultimately the entire planet. For me, when I look at that, what I really see is creating a pro-social environment both inside the company which is the conscious culture and the same pro-social environment outside the company, you know, the conscious leader needs to realize or be conscious of the fact that this thing that's working inside his culture of his company, this pro-social thing can and also needs to be working outside his company. So he needs to be engaging with his suppliers and his customers and community and everything to also recognize that this whole system will work much better if everybody in the system acts in a pro-social way and they will all be much more successful, much more successful than they will be if they allow, you know, we don't want to allow a selfish actor or a selfish individual in our company culture, that'll mess the whole thing up. And in the same way, we don't want to have a selfish customer or a selfish supplier or anything like that in our business ecosystem, because that'll wreck that whole thing. Learning that sounds great to you. Yeah, and I think that we're running close to time here, so maybe we should mm. do a second one of these. First of all, we should name Eleanor Ostrom and her core yes, design absolutely. principles. She was a political scientist, little known in the business and economics world. She studied the famous tragedy of the commons, the tendency of natural resources to be over-exploited. And she showed that actually groups that are attempting to manage common pool resources, sometimes they are capable of avoiding the tragedy of the commons. They can self-regulate self themselves, but only if they possess certain certain core design principles. And then I worked with her to generalize those principles from an evolutionary perspective. So this is like a recipe almost for a group to self-regulate itself and its scale independence. So what you just said is that the very same principles can be applied within a group, but also the company that becomes well-organized in this way is an actor, an agent in a multi-group ecosystem its stakeholders, its supply chain, its community, ultimately the whole earth. And it needs to be a pro-social actor at that larger scale and all the same principles apply. And I think the most important thing to say in a small space is that very often, I think what we find is that there's a big emphasis on getting people to see things the right way and to, hmm. and basically to become pro-social actors. And there's a, like an implicit assumption that if we just get everyone to see things that way, then our job would be done. We're all now pro-socially minded. But what Darwin is here to remind us is that no, we have to be tougher than that. We yeah. have to be able to have to deal with actors who are not at any scale that are not wanting to play like this. 
And so it's there that there's um, core design principles, you know, they really mandate such things as, you know, equal participation, benefits proportional to cost, free riding, not we're structured not allowed. against, yeah. not to speak of active exploitation, decision-making, right. there must be open and inclusive. That requires monitoring, graduated sanction, conflict resolution. This is a social apparatus that needs to be built. And once you build it, now it's safe to be pro-social. Now you can extend yourself, but very often, I think people miss that point is that this is like social engineering is a phrase with a bad name. People don't use that term because they regard it as, as manipulative or otherwise a stigmatized term. We need to revive that term and it's exactly what we need to do. What we need to do is like installing a streetlight in a dark alley. That turns a dangerous environment into a safer environment. And that's what the core design principles do. They make it safe to be pro-social. And if you just cultivate a state of mind it's actually unethical because you're then causing people to behave in ways that, that make them vulnerable to predatory behavior. So there's the big piece, I think. Then once you get that and you set about building those safe environments within your organization, and then you work at a larger scale to extend those very same core design principles above it, now you've got something that's workable. Right. Yeah. My personality was not the sort that I wanted to go after and challenge people and, you know, have conflict with somebody who was abusing the system. That was not my natural tendency. But, you know, over time, over the years, I've realized much more, you know, and especially reading your book, ProSocial, that that is absolutely essential. So, you know, at this point, I know that if I'm the leader in a group or a leader in a group, that, that is my responsibility to make sure that their you know, selfish behavior and predatory behavior and things are just not tolerated. One of the core design principles is called graduated sanctions, which right. means that it starts out friendly. My experience, and I'm sure it's yours, is an, I work with many groups, and in most cases, everyone in the group is well-meaning. There's no overt cheaters, actually. Everyone is well-meaning, and still they manage to fail. So it's like, um, then trip over each other and basically operate on the left side of the matrix. There's a bit of jargon that your listeners can be intrigued by and learn more. And so what that means, and we've all been in that position where we actually didn't come through or somebody else didn't come through, it's not because they were mean-spirited at all. And so it's at that point, and here's where religions, we've talked about best practices from the business world. There's also best practices in the religious world. You know, so, hey, brother, uh, and you know, and that's enough yeah. because... People have signed on to the norm. Uh, that's another thing about basic human nature of moral systems is that um, when a group has a norm, everyone's agreed upon it. They've been public. They said that they would do these things. And then if they don't, well, right. they're properly apologetic. Yep. And they try to make amends. So it's only in the odd case that there's something where you have to kind of escalate. Yeah. But you yep. have to be but you have to be prepared for that. And right. in a religion, it's like, you know, ultimately exclusion is the only option in cases. But you hope they'll come back and accept what's put upon them and all will be forgiven. We'll intercede on behalf of God and then all will be be set right again. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. And, it, you know, so some good examples from, you know, from a company point of view, we were running uh, four different shifts over seven days. And there was agreed upon, like, how you were supposed to leave the room for the next person. And there was a change over time where you could do that. And if people didn't, you know, left it, you know, then you'd have this shift versus shift going on where they weren't happy with each other and there was tension and everything. So, you know, basically just a gentle reminder, hey, 
did you tell so-and-so that by the way, just remind them and they might say, oh, so sorry, you know, this thing happened in my family that night and I rushed out and I didn't, you know, put the things away like I was supposed to. It's like, okay, you know, that's all right. We're all yeah. human, things happen. And we go on with that. And then on the other hand too, I also had examples where there were people in that we hired, some of whom I hired, who were really, really terrible people. And only a couple of them out of maybe 500 or so, but they were really bad actors. And as soon as we sensed that, it's absolutely imperative to get rid of them and get them out of there because they're just ruining it for everybody. People had people in tears and all upset and, you know, very unjust, yeah. you know, predatory type behavior. They can really sell themselves really well when they're coming in. They've got all these skills and everything that you want. And then sometimes they just don't work out and you just can't have any tolerance for, for that. Sort and of a lot of this, when you probe that, you find such things as family backgrounds and Mm. also cultural backgrounds that could make you basically yeah. understand why this is. And also that this has been normative, of course, especially in the business world, back to this uh, kind of, yeah. uh, you know, hierarchical authoritarian behavior and so on and so forth. And that's why, you know, they're doing what only makes sense to them, what's often worked for them in the past, right. at least what individually. Yeah, but um, they've seen modeled by previous supervisors that they had at some other company. Yeah, I mean, so this is where... This is where cultural evolution is, is more difficult work. I often describe it authentically as something that can, like installing a streetlight. You know, you install the streetlight and you've made things better. But then there's a kind of a much harder version of changing a culture that it's just harder work. You can still do it, but it's more of a project. And that includes people that have had a lifetime of experience and have adapted basically, but it's back to evolution, mm. yes. to their environment in a certain way. But uh, as we've already noted, in a way which is actually becomes disruptive at a larger scale. And so that's where it becomes more difficult work. I, I do think, Evan, we need to have a part two of this conversation because sure. uh, we're up at our hour and we have much more to discuss. But I think that maybe in closing, I've admired the conscious capitalism movement for a long time. And I know it's like a fellow traveler mm. in terms of what it's attempting to do to this explicitly evolutionary perspective, which is the differentiator as far as what I've come in, the added value yeah. that someone such as myself can provide. And so I guess I'd like to hear from you, what is it based on, you're kind of a forerunner, I would say, in terms of having encountered this material and, and assimilated it. And so that puts you in a, in a good position to tell others, you know, what is the added value of this Darwinian evolutionary perspective? Because most people still don't know about it. That's how new it is. You only discovered it two years ago, you just said. And yeah, so yeah. you're ahead of the pack. So uh, I think that I'd really love to know in your words, what is it that's worth paying attention to here? Yeah, so I think for me, the idea is to introduce more companies to this and, and have them actually maybe take a chance and, and change. Not that it's much of a chance, it's a pretty much a good idea. You know, most people aren't open very much of the time to changing their point of view. There's a fraction of people that feel in their gut, in their heart, that this is the right way to do it, to run their business, but they don't have a good way of explaining it to anybody else, maybe on the management team. So that's one possibility. The other possibility is there might be somebody that's thinking about this, has maybe read some studies and it says, oh, the companies that operate this way outperform other companies that don't. And so they see that and they say, oh, so this looks interesting, but having circumstantial evidence or subjective evidence is one thing. And that's great to have that when they're actually interested in, in listening and hearing, but it's another thing entirely to have a solid theory that you can use to explain it. And once they've understood the difference 
what a pro-social group is and how that changes everything and how the dynamic actually works, not only for all the people in the group, but also how the group performance goes up. It's pretty easy for people to get that and to realize that if you've got two companies and one of them is running a command and control hierarchical system and another company is running in a system where people care about each other, there's compassion and, and eagerness to share and teach and learn and excitement about sharing things and no fear of losing something or being taken advantage of or anything like that, that those companies will easily outperform the other company because there's so many ideas and so many things that will be happening instead of, there's a guy, David Marquet, he's a submarine commander and he's got a book called Turn the Ship Around. But you know, basically the way he explains it is instead of one person thinking about what needs to happen and telling 134 other people on the submarine what to do, instead you've got 135 people all thinking about what needs to be done and, and <laughs> then sharing that with each other and then Okay, this is, so this is how he organizes a submarine? Crew? Yeah, yeah. So well, yeah. there's a book, another book, you probably in our team of teams by General Stanley McChrystal. Yes, um, yes. And so this is like a military context. You'd think that yes. if ever there was going to be a I know. command and control hierarchy, it should be in the military. And here's right. two cases where this fluid organization that we're talking about for business actually works in a military context. Isn't that right. amazing? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so like, I, and I have read team of teams and, you know, on Marquet's summary in the heat, he was appointed captain of the worst performing submarine in the U.S. Navy at the time. And within a couple of years, it was the highest performing submarine with all, yeah. the, all the audits because yeah. it just changed the whole dynamic. Instead of having people waiting around to be told what to do, instead they were thinking about, you know, what um, needed to happen. And, and I'll tell you, Gavin, I mean, it's the combination that uh, from my perspective, I come to a situation, you know, basically well-equipped on the theory end of things, but without much experience in the practice end mm -hmm. of things. And, oh boy, I'm way out of my comfort zone. So I think that the combination of both, to have somebody who's basically, they've experienced it, they're good at it, they've implemented yeah. it in their own way, and now they have added theoretical justification. There's your combination. And so I see, that's one reason, of course, why I'm so interested to be talking with you and to be more generally merging the conscious capitalism movement with this approach. This podcast is a step in that direction, and I'm uh, eager, as you know, to take additional steps. And so I look forward to that. Yeah, me too. It'd be excellent. Thank you very much. Really appreciate Gentlemen, it. there is definitely enough content for more than one podcast, if you would uh, <laughs> be as kind as to join us again. We haven't put you off too much, I hope, David. No, no, of course not. Oh, I have to join another meeting, but this is great. I'm so happy. And I am able to come on the third to the, to the uh, gathering. Fantastic. Yeah. So uh, please give me yeah. more uh, information about that. And then, uh, yeah, because both your friend Andrew and I have been dreaming about getting you and Raj in the same room at the same time. So. <laughs> yeah, so there you go. It's a privilege for me. It's going to happen. So, uh, and we will definitely try and rearrange for a part two of this. It's been absolutely fascinating listening to you guys. Shoot the breeze, shall we say. Lots more questions. I know I've got a ton of questions. I know Gavin's got more questions for you as well. So let's make the part two happen. Gavin, and okay. of course, our special guest, David, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for being a part of the Curious Capitalist podcast. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of The Curious Capitalist. If you would like to find out more about conscious capitalism, or if you would like to join the local chapter, visit the website connecticut.consciouscapitalism.org. The Curious Capitalist is available on all podcast platforms including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, 
Amazon Music and Spotify. If you have enjoyed listening to this episode, subscribe to and share this podcast today. This podcast was created and produced by Red Rock Branding. RedRockBranding.com.